Welcome to part two of the Rat Pack at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We've got a lot of ground to cover with this episode as we look into the lives and legends of the major and minor players in the Rat Pack, starting with Dean Martin. 8532 Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles is just an office building now, but for 20 years it was Dino's Restaurant, and anyone driving down Sunset Boulevard in those days couldn't miss the neon sign showing Dean Martin's smiling mug. Inside, they served Italian cuisine to locals and tourists hoping to catch a glimpse of Dino, who was rarely there, because he had really just agreed to let investor Paul Wexler use his name and image so Dean could pocket some money at a low point in his career. And Dino's restaurant flourished, especially after the popular detective drama 77 Sunset Strip included that neon sign in the opening credits and made one of their key players, the hip Edward Kooky Burns, a car hop who worked next door to the detective agency. Kooky was the show's resident teen idol who was always taking a moment to comb back his long hair before running off to help solve a crime. He cemented his pop status by cutting a record called Kooky Kooky Lend Me Your Comb with Connie Stevens, which was a hit. You might remember Ed Burns from the 1978 film Grease as television teen dance show host Vince Fontaine. But back to Dino's. Only a few patrons would have recognized the general manager, Bill Crocetti, who had the same olive tan face and a bruisy tinged dialect as his younger brother Dino, but without the singing voice that had made Dean Martin a household word. Dino's stayed in business for 20 years and even survived Jerry's, which also featured a gaudy sign and tried to hire away Dino's top staff. Jerry's was created as part of a spite war from a still-miffed Jerry Lewis after the breakup of Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin as a comedy and film team. And we'll get to that story in a little while. Dean Martin was born Dino Paul Crosetti, June 7, 1917, in Steubenville, Ohio, to an Italian father, Gaetano Alfonso Crosetti, and an Italian-American mother, Angelo Crosetti. They were married in 1914. His father, who was a barber, was originally from Monte Silvano in Abruzzo, a mountainous area south of Rome, had followed other family members to America, but upon reaching the steel foundries around Steubenville, Ohio, decided not to spend the rest of his life pounding steel and learned how to be a barber. For him, it turned out to be a good decision. The family was comfortable, and Dean had a good childhood. Martin's first language was Italian, the Abruzzese dialect, and he did not speak English until he started school at the age of five. He attended Grant Elementary School in Steubenville, where he was bullied for his broken English. He later took up the drums as a hobby as a teenager. Martin then dropped out of Steubenville High School in the 10th grade because he thought he was smarter than his teachers. There was a world of opportunity around Steubenville, and not all of it on the up and up, which was probably how Steubenville earned the nickname Little Chicago. Dean Bootleg Liquor served as a speakeasy croupier, was a blackjack and poker dealer in a local gambling den, and he worked briefly in a steel mill, which he later said was as close a vision of hell as he'd ever wanted to get, and he was boxing as a welterweight by age 15. He billed himself as Kid Crochet, and his prize fighting earned him a broken nose, later straightened, a scarred lip, many broken knuckles, 
a result of not being able to afford tape used to wrap the boxer's hands, and a bruised body. Of his twelve bouts, he said, I won all but eleven. For a time, he shared a New York City apartment with Sonny King, who was starting in show business, and like Dean, had little money. Martin and King reportedly held bare-knuckle matches in their apartment, fighting until one was knocked out, and people paid to watch. Martin soon gave up boxing to work as a roulette stickman and croupier in an illegal casino behind a tobacco shop, where he had started as a stock boy. At the same time, he sang with local bands, calling himself Dino Martini, after the Metropolitan Opera tenor Nino Martini, and he started taking singing lessons from the mayor's wife and performing in local clubs and taverns. The radio and phonograph were making stars out of crooners. And like Sinatra, Dean Martin knew that he was born to sing. He got his break working for the Ernie McKay Orchestra out of Cleveland. He sang in a crooning style influenced by Harry Mills of the Mills Brothers, among others. In the early 1940s, he started singing for band leader Sammy Watkins, who suggested he change his name to Dean Martin. He did, and that worked. In October of 1941, Martin married Elizabeth Betty Ann MacDonald. She had dropped out after one year at Swarthmore. She was a good-looking Irish girl with lots of spunk and loved her kids through what turned out to be mostly fatherless years, as Dean's daughter Deanna would later write in her book, Memories Are Made of This, Dean Martin Through His Daughter's Eyes. She loved her dad, and they lived in a nice home, but she rarely saw him, and he and her mom were divorced when she was only one. He did visit in later years, but those were rare days. She recalled her older brother waiting outside their home for Dad to pick him up to go to a special event, as he had promised. But Dad never showed. The boy waited hours. A long enough time, Deanna wrote, that he never waited again. When he was old enough, he went into the military. Her mom dated other men, and they would come to the house, sometimes sleeping over. Life for kids of showbiz people, from all I've read and heard anyway, is rarely a happy one. Dean and Betty had four children before the marriage ended in 1949, and Betty tried to hang on to it, refusing to sign divorce papers, but Dean was already publicly embarrassing her by going out with, and even marrying, another woman, before Betty finally gave in to divorce. Martin worked for various bands throughout the early 1940s, mostly on looks and personality, until he developed his own singing style. In 1943, a local MCA agent got in touch, and Martin got a shot at the popular club Rio Bamba in New York, after Frank Sinatra had canceled an engagement. But to take that opportunity, he would need to get a release from Sammy Watkins. That wasn't in the making, and Sammy would be in Dean's wallet for seven years. Dean had signed away 10% of his income for the next seven years, and actually Watkins was skimming 20%, according to some. Dean headed for the Rio Bamba in September 1943, working for 150 a week, and found himself working in Manhattan and finding out that that 150 a week there was putting him in the hole. Dean started accepting percentage deals from a bevy of managers who promised him work and fortune, and it wasn't long before Dean realized that he could never make enough to pay the rent because he had signed away 105% of Dino. <clears throat> After he lost his room for lack of payments, Dean was living in his agent Lou Perry's flat along with Sonny King and his brother Alan King. 
Lou Perry let his young, struggling clients stay with him until they could make some real dough. He provides some interesting and humorous background on his friend Dean Martin in his book and then ends the chapter on a very touching note. He'd heard that Dean, at the end of his life, used to have dinner at the same Italian restaurant every night by himself. King was in L.A. and went to the restaurant and surprised Dean. Martin was so happy to see King that they both laughed and cried. In his book, Name Dropping, The Life and Lives of Alan King, Alan wrote, I went back to my hotel thinking about him, my vagabond friend. He was a gambler, a drinker, a womanizer. All the good things. Alan King, having worked his way up doing vaudeville and comedy in the Catskills, was a great comedic storyteller, and his stage style was reminiscent of Seinfeld's. Finding those little things in life that frustrate the hell out of us, and dealing with them in a manner that makes them humorous, allowing us, the audience, to let off a little steam in the process, and have a laugh at ourselves. They were living down to their last nickel during that tough year in Manhattan. Deanna Martin tells the story of how Dean would walk down to Nettick's restaurant in the morning, Nettick's being famous for their hot dog and orange soda specials, and for their breakfast special, which was a cup of coffee, two donuts, and an orange soda. All for a nickel. Dean would come in first, enjoying half the meal. Then Sonny would come in, and Dean would say, Hey, Sonny, how you been? Listen, I got a donut here if you want to finish up for me. I got an appointment. I got to go. After a week of this, the owner, knowing they were struggling showbiz guys, told them, Just come in together, and I'll give you both specials for one nickel. If you ever make it, you can repay me. And according to Deanna, years later, they looked him up, and each man gave him a check for $25,000. And it cashed. 1944 would prove to be a busy year for Dino. Martin was drafted into the United States Army in 44, serving a year in Akron, Ohio, before being reclassified as 4F and discharged, probably because of a double hernia. And no sooner had he waved goodbye to the Army than one of his agents had booked him into the Glass Hat nightclub for a singing gig. Working as MC there was a skinny kid with acne named Jerry Lewis, who, in addition to being MC, was doing pantomime. Jerry's singing voice is hard to describe. I think of the Aflac commercials using the goose that sneezes out the nasally Aflac. Picture the goose doing that and sounding like a Jewish mother at the same time. Jerry decided at first look to hitch his wagon to Dean and started to follow him everywhere from gig to gig and even began edging into Dean's act. Jerry had some crazy acts himself. One in particular was a sight gag during which he would lip-sync to operatic arias while pretending to dress for work, an act which required the use of a record player just off stage. One night when they were playing at the Havana Madrid nightclub in Manhattan, Dean lightly bounced the record on the turntable, putting Jerry off sync with the record, and Jerry was immediately furious with Dean. The crowd, however, began to laugh, so Jerry continued with the act. When Dean's turn came, Jerry donned a busboy's uniform and started dropping dishes at critical points in Dean's song, exacting revenge for what Dean had done earlier. The crowd loved it, especially when Dean walked out of the restaurant carrying a suitcase and firing back, Look me up when you're through. Fast forward to the summer of 46, when Jerry was playing the 500 Club in Atlantic City and found himself on the verge of being fired. 
having nowhere else to turn, he called Dean's agent in New York, found out he was available, and promised the mob casino owners that they had songs and old vaudeville skits that would work. Dean, not being the kind of guy to let a friend down, and no doubt hungry for the bucks and new connections, headed for Atlantic City. But their act, as it was, with Dean crooning and the two trading vaudeville acts and jokes, didn't work. The first night was a bust. Owner Skitty Devano warned them that if they didn't come up with a better act for their second show that night, they would be fired. Huddling in the alley behind the club, Lewis and Martin agreed to go for broke. They divided their act between songs, skits, and then to try the exact thing they did back in Manhattan. So Jerry tried his lip sync, Dean popped the record, Jerry got furious, then Dean Martin sang, and Lewis dressed as a busboy, dropping plates and making a shambles of Martin's performance, and the club's decorum, until Lewis was chased from the room as Martin pelted him with bread rolls. This brought the house down, and Skinny's 500 Club was packed to the rafters for weeks. This success led to a series of well-paying engagements on the eastern seaboard, culminating in a run at New York's Copacabana. The formula stayed the same, with Lewis interrupting and heckling Martin while he was trying to sing, and the two ultimately chasing each other around the stage. The secret, both said, is that they ignored the audience and played to each other. The team made its TV debut on the first broadcast of CBS TV Network's The Ed Sullivan Show, then called The Toast of the Town, on June 20, 1948, with composers Rogers and Hammerstein also appearing. Hoping to improve their act, the two hired young comedy writers Norman Lear and Ed Simmons to write their bits. With the assistance of both Lear and Simmons, the two would take their act beyond nightclubs. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. A radio series began in 1949, the year Martin and Lewis signed with Paramount producer Hal B. Wallace as comedy relief for the movie My Friend Irma. Their agent, Abby Gressler, negotiated one of Hollywood's best deals. Although they received only $75,000 between them for their films with Wallace, Martin and Lewis were free to do one outside film a year, which they would co-produce through their own York Productions. My Friend Irma did extremely well, spawning a spinoff called My Friend Irma Goes West, and the money began to roll. They also controlled their club, record, radio, and television appearances, and through these, they earned millions of dollars. In his book Dean and Me, Lewis calls Martin one of the great comic geniuses of all time. They were friends, as well, 
with Lewis acting as best man when Martin remarried in 1949. But harsh comments from the critics, as well as frustration with the similarity of Martin and Lewis movies, which producer Hal Wallace refused to change, led to Martin's dissatisfaction. He put less enthusiasm into the work, leading to escalating arguments with Lewis. Martin told his partner, It was nothing to me but a dollar sign. The act broke up in 1956, ten years to the day from their first teaming. Their last act together took place on stage at the Copacabana, where they had gotten their start. When their breakup hit the news, it was a major announcement. By 1956, their names as a team had become household words. When the Dodgers left Brooklyn a year later, it garnered roughly the same amount of coverage. Martin's first solo film, 10,000 Bedrooms, in 1957, was a box office flop. It was so bad that critics were saying that Martin would be forgotten in just a few months. He was still popular as a singer, but with rock and roll to the fore, the area of the pop crooner was on the way out. Martin wanted to become a dramatic actor and known for more than slapstick comedy films. Though offered a fraction of his former salary to co-star in a war drama, The Young Lions, in 1958, he would share parts with Marlon Brando and Montgomery Clift. Tony Randall already had the part, but talent agency MCA realized that with this film, Martin would become a triple threat. They could make money from his work in nightclub, film, and records. So Martin replaced Tony Randall, and the film turned out to be the beginning of Martin's comeback. And that's the second time we see similarities between Sinatra and Martin's careers. It had been the part in From Here to Eternity that brought Frank back. Now it was the part in The Young Lions that was breathing life into Martin's career. Not that Dean was down and out, his debts had been paid, but in 1957, he wasn't sure what the future looked like. The two, Dean and Frank, had crossed paths before, first at a battle of the bands at a Midwest club when Sinatra was playing for Dorsey and Martin was singing for Sammy Watkins. Sinatra had also been a guest on the Dean and Jerry radio show. Now, under the bright lights, Martin starred alongside Frank Sinatra for the first time in the Vincent Minnelli drama Some Came Running in 1958, and they started hanging out, along with Sammy Davis, whom Sinatra had met and become fast friends with ten years before, helping to open doors in the business for Sammy. And we'll cover Sammy next. By the mid-1960s, Martin was a movie, recording, television, and nightclub star. Martin was acclaimed as Dude in Rio Bravo, 1959, directed by Howard Hawks, and also starring John Wayne and singer Ricky Nelson, with Angie Dickinson and Walter Brennan in supporting roles as Feathers and Stumpy. I can't, I can't help but laugh at those names. The writer wasn't big on long names. To put some gravity in that statement, Dean played Dude. Howard Hawks said that Rio Bravo was made as the antidote for High Noon, of which he said that High Noon told the story of a sheriff who had to beg for help all around town and was finally saved by his Mormon wife. Ouch. <clears throat> well, I'm about 30 years late with a comeback, but Rio Bravo took some huge detours from authentic Western genre when, between action scenes, Dean Martin sang a My Little Pony song and Ricky Nelson crooned Get Along Home Little Cindy. And if that wasn't enough, Hawks went on to produce two more Westerns basically copies of Rio Bravo. So if you're ever watching El Dorado or Rio Lobo, you won't need to bother to watch the other two. If you have to pick one, start with El Dorado. 
Robert Mitchum, actor, tough guy, and real-life prison escapee before he made his way to Hollywood, played a good Western character. I like John Wayne, but when they brought in the crooners, the real Westerns disappeared. At least Sinatra didn't try to sing his Maggio. Or did he? It's been a while since I saw that film. Dean teamed again with Wayne in The Sons of Katie Elder in 1965, cast as brothers, and that was a good movie. We covered the true story that inspired this movie in an episode from last year called Blood Brothers, the true story that inspired the movie The Sons of Katie Elder, now in our premium archives at 1001 Heroes. In 1960, Martin was cast in the film version of the Judy Holliday stage musical comedy Bells Are Ringing. He won a Golden Globe nomination for his performance in the 1960 film comedy Who Was That Lady? but continued to seek dramatic roles, portraying a Southern politician in 1961's Ada, and starring in 1963's screen adaptation of an intense stage drama, Toys in the Attic, opposite Geraldine Page, as well as in the 1970s drama, Airport, a huge box office success, which is still on many people's top ten funniest movies list. Sinatra and Dean teamed up for several more movies, the crime caper Ocean's Eleven, later redone for new generations of moviegoers, the musical Robin and the Seven Hoods, and the western comedies Sergeants Three and Four for Texas, often with their Rat Pack pals such as Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop, as well as a romantic comedy Marriage on the Rocks. Martin also co-starred with Shirley MacLaine in a number of films, including Some Came Running, Artists and Models, Career, All in a Night's Work, and What a Way to Go. She, meaning Shirley MacLaine, was a lively part of the Rat Pack, more like their temporary mascot than a bedwarmer, according to her version, but she's still around, at last check, with a list of movies behind her that number in the hundreds. Dean played a satiric variation of his own womanizing persona as Las Vegas singer Dino in Billy Wilder's comedy Kiss Me Stupid in 1964 with Kim Novak, and he poked fun at his image in films such as the Matt Helm spy spoofs of the 60s, in which he was a co-producer. In the third Matt Helm film, The Ambushers, in 1967, Helm, about to be executed, receives a last cigarette and tells the provider, I'll remember you from the great beyond, and then continuing, Sato Voice, somewhere around Steubenville, I hope. By the early 1960s, Dean Martin was doing okay in the movies, but hadn't had a record hit since Volare back in 1958. In 1962, his pal Frank had recommended that he, Dean, sign with Reprise, Frank's label, and that turned out to be a great move. Dean's longtime piano guy, Ken Lane, had been working on a tune for years, one of those back pocket items that creative people all have, that you pull out every now and then and tweak it and put it back until one day it hits you. This song was called Everybody Loves Somebody Sometime. When Jimmy Bowen, who was the brains at Reprise, called in a group of pros to do a recording session at Reprise on April 16, 1964, Bowen, Dean, and Ken got their wish, and Dean had his first major hit in six years. Hal Blaine from the legendary Wrecking Crew, the group of musicians whose creativity accounted for a good deal of the hits coming out of the West Coast in the 60s, added some bottom to the soaring strings, and a legendary song was born. Blaine's creative touch is audible in the Dean Martin song Houston, too, where Dean croons, 
Well, it's lonesome in this old town. And we hear a unique tapping sound. That was Blaine holding a glass ashtray and hitting it lightly with a drumstick. Spur-of-the-moment stuff that really worked well and helped to give songs more identity. Everybody Loves Somebody knocked the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night off number one in the United States in 1964. This was followed by The Door is Still Open to My Heart, which reached number six that year. Elvis Presley was said to have been influenced by Martin and patterned Love Me Tender after his style. Martin, like Elvis, was influenced by country music. By 1965, some of Martin's albums, such as Dean Tex Martin Rides Again, Houston, Welcome to My World, and Gentle on My Mind, were composed of country and western songs by artists such as Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, and Buck Owens. Martin hosted country performers on his TV show and was named by Country Music Association in 1966. The final album of his recording career was 1983's The Nashville Sessions. The image of Martin as a Vegas entertainer in a tuxedo has been an enduring one. Ain't That a Kick in the Head, a song Martin performed in Ocean's Eleven, did not become a hit at that time, but it has enjoyed a revival in the media and pop culture. For three decades, Martin was among the most popular acts in Las Vegas. Martin sang and was one of the smoothest comics in the business, benefiting from a decade of comedy with Lewis. Martin's daughter, Gail, also sang in Vegas and on many TV shows, including his, co-hosting his summer replacement series on NBC. Daughter Deanna Martin continues to perform, as did youngest son Ricky Martin, until his death in August of 2016. He moved to Utah in 1990 and later joined the trio Ricky, Desi, and Billy, a modern-day version of Dino, Desi, and Billy. The act had previously included his brother, Dean Paul Martin, who had died in a plane crash in 1987. In 2002, Martin published That's Amore, A Son Remembers, reflecting on his relationship with his father. For almost 10 years of Ricky Martin's musical career, he was a performer in the show His Son Remembers, Dean Martin's Music and More, a tribute show to his father, Dean. Martin's eldest son, Craig, was a producer on Martin's television show, and daughter, Claudia, was an actress in films, such as For Those Who Think Young. Apparently, by the 1960s, as second wife Jean put it, prior to the couple's divorce, he was home every night for dinner. He was home every night for dinner. Then there was Sammy. At first look, it seemed like Sammy had everything against him. He was short, maimed, black, Jewish, gaudy, uneducated, and sported a glass eye on a face that only a mother could love. But he had talent, all kinds of it, and it propelled him to great heights. He could never escape the taunting of the Jim Crow racists who seemed to proliferate in Vegas, but it only made him work harder to gain respect. He was the baby of the Rat Pack, ten years younger than Frank, and Frank brought him into it and kept him under his wing. With his mother gone on the road right after his birth, and while in the care of his grandmother Rosa, Sammy, at the age of three, joined the Will Maston Traveling Show and became the feature act as Little Sammy, and he learned fast how to dance, sing, and entertain. It was as a member of Will Maston's trio that Sammy found himself wandering backstage in Detroit in 1941, getting ready to go on stage as the opening act for the Tommy Dorsey Band. Suddenly he was offered a handshake by a skinny white guy who said, Hi. My name's Frank. 
I sing with Dorsey. Sammy would later say that that might not sound like much, but the average top vocalist in those days wouldn't give the time of day to a Negro supporting act. But it was obvious that Frank had taken a liking to him. During the next few days, he was taking the time to hang out with Sammy, shooting the breeze about showbiz and the life. But soon after, the war broke out, and Sammy was drafted into the Army, sent to a base in Wyoming. And that's when life got rough, very rough. For two years, Sammy was treated like crap. They beat him, they pulled pranks on him, handed him bottles of urine. They held him down and inscribed coon and I'm a nigger on his face and body, and they beat him constantly. Sammy would later say, and I'm paraphrasing, I joined the army to fight, and I did, every day, to protect myself from getting killed by our guys. Finally, a friend at the base named George M. Cohen convinced Sammy to create a traveling show that would get him off the base in Wyoming, and Sammy used his talent to escape. When he finally got out, opportunities in showbiz were virtually non-existent for a black guy. He rejoined Will Maston and Big Sam, and they played in Vegas, and he looked up Frank, who was now a big star. Not long after, Maston and his trio, along with Sammy, were offered a high-paying gig at New York's Capitol Theater as an opening act for Frank's show at $12.50 a week. This time, the $12.50 meaning $1,250. Sinatra never told Sammy that he had arranged it, but he did tell him, if anyone ever messes with you again, you let me know. But Sammy was pushing hard and getting better, adding a great string of impersonations to an already hot song and dance act. Sammy could do Jimmy Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, and Cary Grant so well that when you heard it, you couldn't tell the difference. And it's out there on YouTube. Sammy was on the showbiz map by 1951 and rising. Like Jackie Robinson, Sammy was breaking down barriers just from the sheer effort of his music and presence. In 1954, the Maston Trio not only got to play the frontier in Vegas, but they were eating, gambling, and socializing among white customers and making nearly $2,000 a week besides. Sammy was commuting back and forth from L.A. to Vegas in his Cadillac convertible. When late at night on November 19, 1954, in the company of his valet, Charlie Head, who had driven the first lap to Victoryville, and was now sleeping on the back seat, swerved into oncoming traffic to avoid hitting a car that was making an illegal U-turn right in front of him. It was just after 7 a.m. when Sammy encountered the fork where Kendall Drive split off to the left and Cajon Boulevard continued to the right. At the split, an elderly lady driving a Chrysler had missed her turn onto Kendall and was backing into Sammy's lane to get herself back on course. Sammy slammed into the rear of the Chrysler. The Cadillac careened off the Chrysler, miraculously missing oncoming traffic and came to a stop after slamming into a stone column at the entrance to a driveway. The impact of the crash had driven Sammy's face into the steering wheel, and his left eye was forced out of its socket by the bullet-shaped cone at the center of the wheel. He also broke his nose on the sun visor and broke his kneecap on the emergency brake handle. Charlie was also badly injured in the collision. He was thrown face-first into the back of the steel-framed front seat. The blow fractured his jaw and broke out all his teeth, but Charlie remained conscious. The driver of the Chrysler and her passenger were both injured too. The two ladies were thrown into the back seat of their car by the impact. The driver, 
72-year-old Helen Ross suffered a back injury, and her passenger, 69-year-old Bessie Ross, suffered a broken leg. As rescuers were loading Sammy into an ambulance, his only thought, upon seeing the gap where his eye had been in a reflection, was, Oh my God, they're going to hate me again. He was rushed to a hospital in Palm Springs, where Hollywood's best turned out to wish him well. Tony Curtis and Janet Lee waited on him during his surgery, and Frank visited constantly, as did a host of Hollywood and Vegas celebrities. In Arthur Silber's Sammy Davis Jr., Me and My Shadow, Silber wrote, For a few days in late 1954, a small hospital in San Bernardino was the center of attention for Hollywood's elite, as well as for entertainment fans across America. Sammy spent six agonizing hours in the hospital hallway, waiting for an operating room in the cramped and outdated building at the corner of 4th Street and Arrowhead Avenue. That evening, well-known San Bernardino eye surgeon Frederick H. Hull operated on Sammy's eye. Family and friends were gathered at the hospital, nervously awaiting news of Sammy's condition. Hull came out after the surgery and told the anxious group that he had to remove Sammy's left eye, and it was still touch and go for his right eye. The good news was that Sammy's other injuries would heal in time. He also reported that Charlie would recover from his injuries. During the surgery on Sammy, Hull had attached a prosthetic socket onto Sammy's left eye muscles that would be used to hold and direct a glass eye that would be implanted after he healed further. Soon after hearing the news, Hollywood's biggest stars rallied to support Sammy's recovery, and many made the trip to be at his bedside in San Bernardino. Jeff Chandler, Tony Curtis, and Sinatra were among the first to visit. The hospital stay had a profound impact on Sammy's life in more than one way. It was in San Bernardino that he began his conversion to Judaism after a visit from a rabbi chaplain. Sammy said, Yeah, and we had a long talk. Some of the things he said helped me, and for the first time in my life, a religion started to make sense to me. Sammy was released from the hospital on Sunday, November 28th. He was so grateful to Hull and the hospital staff for the care he received that he promised to come back to San Bernardino and do a benefit show when the new community hospital was completed. Frank insisted that Sammy stay at his house in Palm Springs while he was recovering. And you just don't say no to Frank, said Silber. So he went and spent a couple of weeks out there just taking it easy. After the accident, Sammy regained and even refined his famous dance moves. He went on to become a superstar, breaking down color barriers in virtually every entertainment venue, from nightclubs to Broadway to TV and movies and records. On November 15, 1958, Sammy came back to San Bernardino and made good on his promise to do a benefit for the new community hospital. The star-studded show sold out all 7,500 seats in the Swing Auditorium at the National Orange Show Event Center and raised $20,000 for the new hospital. Sammy himself opened the extravaganza with Let Me Sing. He then introduced Judy Garland, who graced the packed house with eight songs, including her trademark, Over the Rainbow. Other stars included James Garner, Sidney Poitier, Danny Thomas, and Shirley MacLaine. Sammy helped so many people over the years, said Silber. One of the things a lot of people don't realize is how many doors Sammy Davis Jr. opened in his lifetime. It's hard to believe these days but Sammy was the first black man to walk through a Las Vegas casino. Then there was Peter Lawford. Raised in the right circles, who had all the looks and sophistication of a British gentleman, whose family had escaped scandal in Britain and had come to Los Angeles, 
where Peter's mom, May, groomed him for show business. As a mom, according to most writers, she had a host of challenges that began long before Peter's birth, but became evident at his birth when she was quoted to have said, I can't stand babies. They run at both ends. They smell of sour milk and urine. Before handing him to a nurse and later to nannies. May and her husband, called the General, thrived in Hollywood, being the eccentric British odd couple that liked to throw parties. And Peter, at the age of 20, landed a contract with MGM Pictures, where he appeared in B-rolls in a number of movies. Peter stayed busiest chasing skirts and having success with a number of big names. Lana Turner, Rita Hayworth, Ann Baxter, Judy Garland, June Allison, and Ava Gardner, to name a few but turned down a shot at Liz Taylor and Marilyn Monroe, according to Sean Levy in Rat Pack Confidential, saying that he refused Elizabeth Taylor because she had what he considered to be fat thighs, and Marilyn because her living room was dotted with chihuahua poop when he came by. Despite all this success, if you want to call it that, he was constantly fending off rumors that he was gay, and one detractor went so far as to call him, quote, the screaming faggot of State Beach. His mother, who really was his worst enemy, walked into Louis B. Meyer's office and told Meyer that Peter was a homosexual, a charge that Peter had to counter by asking Lana Turner to provide all the sordid details to Meyer. That put the final nail in the relationship between Peter and his mom. Peter was a beach bum and hung with the surfers, learning how to surf and picking up some of the unique language and mannerisms that some of the Rat Pack, once they adopted him into their circle, picked up as well. Then Peter fell head over heels in love with Patricia Kennedy. She, not of Hollywood, and no starlet, but a bright and independent young lady. Her dad, Joe Kennedy, was obviously suspicious of why a swordsman like Peter would be interested. So he had him sign a prenup to protect her fortune. Because if you were Kennedy, you naturally had a fortune. You also got the Kennedy curse, but that's another story for another time. In 1954, they were married. And suddenly the Rat Pack had access to political power, about the only thing that had eluded Frank thus far. Not that Frank wasn't involved in politics. He had campaigned for Adlai Stevenson and Dewey, and most recently Bobby Kennedy, and was an avowed Democrat. In 1958, Peter and Frank met at a dinner party at Gary and Rocky Cooper's house, and only one thing was standing in the way. A little matter that went back to the time Frank had threatened to break Peter's leg when Peter was courting Ava Turner. That had put the scare into Peter, who took Frank's advice, knowing that Frank had mob connections, and Peter stayed away. Peter was expecting the worst, but by the end of the party, the two were acting like old buds. In fact, when Pat had a daughter later that year, they named her Victoria Francis, the Francis in recognition of Frank. Frank and Peter became close. Frank set him up with films. The two became partners in a Beverly Hills restaurant. Puccini, and served pasta to the stars, and Frank had a straight shot to Jack Kennedy. It was about that time that Frank added New Jersey stand-up comic Joey Bishop to the Rat Pack, and ever since then the writers and critics have been asking, why? Frank just liked Joey's act and his manner, which, to the crowd, was deadpan, saying, I got better things to do, but here's a few good lines to entertain you. Bishop was a cynic, moody and aloof. He didn't party with the rest of them. He just went home. Frank had seen him working in the Latin Quarter in 1952 and took a liking to him, making sure he got gigs, 
and sort of watching over his career from afar. Joey wasn't a hanger-on, much like Dean, and just took Sinatra's liking for him in stride, never pushing out and never asking for favors. The Rat Pack was legendary for its Las Vegas strip performances and for interrupting others' performances. For example, the marquee at the Sands Hotel might read, Dean Martin, maybe Frank, and maybe Sammy. One famous unscripted interruption happened when the Rat Pack was filming Sergeants 3 in a movie they all knew was going nowhere, and they were all stuck out in Utah with nothing to do. So they headed for Vegas and decided to bust up shows, heading first to the Sands, where Danny Thomas was performing, and broke up the act with their antics, then moving to the hotel where Eddie Fisher was singing That Face, and Dean piped up from beside the stage, saying, If I were you, I'd be home with her, meaning Fisher's wife, Liz Taylor, who was at home suffering from a serious bout of pneumonia. Then Frank, Dean, and Sammy got up on the stage, drinks in hand, and started the dirty jokes and botched songs, and the crowd lost their sense of awe fast. A lot of celebs and the press were at the show that night in support of Liz Taylor, and they came down hard on the trio later, criticizing their egos run amuck and the ruining of Eddie's performance. That was real bad press for them. And all that went down before heading back to Utah early the next morning, or more likely late the next morning, as Frank had a reputation for always being late for scheduled acting times, or just not showing up at all. And the others weren't far behind in that respect. Then there was Marilyn Monroe, the goddess and sex queen of the 50s and 60s. Maybe Peter Lawford didn't sleep with her, but if legends are true, the rest of them did, or at least wanted to. She wasn't a member of the Rat Pack, but she definitely had an effect on them. First was the Wrong Door Raid of 1954. Ever heard of that one? On a quiet night in November 1954, Florence Cotts awoke to the sound of someone taking an axe to her kitchen door. Cotts, a 39-year-old secretary who lived alone on a quiet, West Hollywood-adjacent street, heard glass shatter and wood splinter as the door gave way, but before she could get up, turn a light on, or do anything except scream for help, they were in the house. I was terrified, Cotts said later. The place was full of men. They were making a lot of noise, and lights flashed on. I saw one of them holding something up toward me, and I thought it was a weapon. But it wasn't a weapon. It was a camera. And in the glare of the powerful spotlights, the intruders realized they'd made a spectacular blunder. The woman in the bed was not the sexy blonde actress they had hoped to catch naked and in the throes of passion with a paramour. It was just Florence in her curlers. We got the wrong place, one of them shouted. And then, in a barely suppressed panic, the raiders beat a hasty retreat. They broke a lot of glasses in the kitchen getting out of there, Florence recalled. The LAPD investigated the incident as an attempted burglary, what we would call today as a home invasion robbery. But because the room was dark, except when she'd been blinded by the spotlights on the cameras, Florence Cotts was unable to identify the suspects. There were no other leads, and no arrests were made. The whole matter seemed to have been forgotten. Nearly a year passed. Then, in September of 1955, Florence Cotts was in for another shock. An account of the raid appeared in the lurid, best-selling gossip magazine, Confidential. The cover featured Marilyn Monroe in a pose that registered as both sexy and surprised. 
the teaser line promised to reveal the real reason Marilyn had divorced baseball legend Joe DiMaggio. It was in that story that the world was introduced to the wrongdoer raid, a scandal that involved three of the most famous people on the planet at that time, Marilyn Monroe, Joe DiMaggio, and Frank Sinatra. In the weeks and months after Confidential published its version of the incident, events that led up to their raid that November night began to come to light. Nine days before the raid, on October 27, 1954, Marilyn Monroe's divorce from Joe DiMaggio had become final. The ex-Yankee slugger was taking it hard. There were rumors that, rather than face the fact that she had left him because he was abusive to her, he had convinced himself she had left him for someone else. The alleged abuse was at least in part a manifestation of Joe's insane jealousy. He was jealous of Marilyn's career. He wanted her to give it up and settle down with him. He was jealous of the attention she received from other men, which is an odd and problematic attitude for a man married to an international sex goddess. What was he thinking? By most accounts, things came to a head during production of The Seven-Year Itch. In fact, it might have been the filming of that iconic moment when Marilyn's skirt flew up as she stepped on a subway grate that finally drove DiMaggio over the edge. Every guy in the world had the hots for her after that picture came out. Joe was on hand for that shot, which was filmed on location at 586 Lexington Avenue, in front of a crowd of about 5,000 onlookers. The cat calls and leering attention Marilyn attracted as the shoot went on, requiring take after take until well after midnight, sent Joe into a rage. Later, in their hotel room, the couple argued. Apparently, allegedly, DiMaggio's jealousy got the better of him, and he became physically abusive. When filming was complete, Marilyn returned to Beverly Hills. In early October, her attorney called a press conference on the lawn of the rented home she had shared with Joe at 508 Palm Drive. As the attorney informed the gaggle about the impending divorce, Marilyn, dressed in black, stood beside him looking even more stunningly, luminously beautiful than usual. Let's face it, blondes can't help it, as we pointed out in a recent episode called The Count and the Wedding Guest. They just look good in black, but when asked to comment herself, she could barely speak. The divorce was granted a few weeks later. The end of his marriage did not put a damper on DiMaggio's jealousy. He was convinced Marilyn was seeing someone else, and on a recommendation from Sinatra, he hired Barney Ruditsky, a renowned Hollywood private eye, to track Marilyn's every move. A decade earlier, Ruditsky had played minor roles in a pair of concurrent crime scandals on the Sunset Strip. In the late 1940s, he owned Sherry's Nightclub, the strip hotspot that was the scene of the shotgun attack on Mickey Cohen in July of 1949, an attack that shocked the nation. He also played a supporting role in the corruption scandal that centered on A-list Hollywood madam Brenda Allen, who ratted out a protection racket that included top brass at the LAPD after she was arrested in 1948. Ruditsky had allowed the cops to use his office on the Strip as their base for their wiretapping operation on Brenda's house. As a result of evidence uncovered in the wiretaps, LAPD Chief Clements B. Horal and several of his top lieutenants including one who was Brenda Allen's lover and business partner, lost their jobs and were tried on bribery and other charges. At the time of the wrongdoer raid, Marilyn Monroe was living on the Strip at Brandon Hall Apartments, 
behind the Sunset Tower at 8338 DeLongre Avenue. In the early evening of November 5th, she drove to see her actor friend Sheila Stewart, who lived eight blocks south in one of the three apartments in the building at 8120 Waring Avenue. Marilyn parked her white Cadillac convertible at the curb and went inside. Joe DiMaggio was hanging out with Sinatra at Villa Capri, an Italian restaurant in Hollywood, that night when a call came in from Barney Ruditsky. One of Ruditsky's associates, a 21-year-old rookie private eye named Phil Irwin, had spotted Marilyn's caddy parked on Waring. This was all DiMaggio needed to know. He knew Sheila Stewart lived in the building, and according to Henry E. Scott, author of a book about Confidential Magazine called Shocking True Story, DiMaggio believed Stewart had been allowing Marilyn to tryst with Hal Schaefer, who was the vocal coach for both Marilyn and Sheila Stewart. DiMaggio ordered Rudisky to meet him at the place on Waring to stage the raid in order to get compromising photographs of Marilyn with Schaefer. Why DiMaggio thought it would be useful to catch his ex-wife in bed with another man is a total mystery. It certainly would have damaged Marilyn's career, which had taken a hit earlier when Hugh Hefner published a nude photograph of her taken many years earlier as the inaugural centerfold in Playboy. Still, photographs exposing Marilyn's affair with Hal Schaefer now would not be proof, per se, that she left Joe for someone else, and it certainly would have done nothing to repair their marriage. And quite to the contrary. So it was crazy. The whole, the whole idea was crazy. Within the hour, DiMaggio and Sinatra had assembled a small crowd at the corner of Waring and Kilkia Drive, an otherwise quiet intersection in a solid middle-class section. There are conflicting stories about who was on the corner that night. Billy Capri's maitre d', Billy Karen, was there, but his boss, Billy Capri's owner, Basquale Patsy Demore, would later deny having gone along for the ride. Sinatra's friend John Seminola and manager Henry Santacola may have also been on hand. The private eyes, Ruditsky and Irwin, were definitely there, as were, oddly enough, their wives. It was beginning to look like a social club meeting. In any case, thus assembled, the raiding party found itself faced with a quandary. The two-story building at the corner of Waring and Kilkia Avenue housed three apartments. Two units, 8120 and 8122, fronted Waring. The third unit, 754 Kilkia Drive, faced the side. The odds were one in three. What are you going to do? No one involved in the shenanigans on Warian Avenue that November night could have predicted the firestorm this escapade would cause. That three years later, DiMaggio and Sinatra would face unrelenting public humiliation and civil and possibly even criminal jeopardy because of it. That teams of investigators would be deployed not to look into the particulars of the raid itself, but ostensibly at least to track down who sold the story to Confidential, that there would be multiple hearings and even a libel trial, or especially that the end result of it all would do to Confidential what Hollywood stars and their studios had tried to do from the first minute it hit the stands, bring the scandal sheet's wildly successful run to an end. Tom Wolfe once called Confidential the most scandalous scandal magazine in the history of the world. I guess if you're going to be good at something, be the best you can be. There were suits and countersuits, but at the big trial, the jury deliberated for 14 days, a record even then in California. Even so, the jurors were split and couldn't agree on a verdict. The state agreed not to retry the case. In return, Confidential essentially surrendered, 
it agreed to stop reporting the intimate secrets of Hollywood stars. Florence Kotz got married after the incident, becoming Florence Ross. She later sued Joe DiMaggio, Frank Sinatra, and the rest of the raiding party for $200,000, which would equal about $1.4 million today. She eventually settled for $7,500. To his credit, Joe DiMaggio sought counseling to help him deal with his jealousy and abusiveness. Joe and Marilyn eventually reconciled, and some accounts say they made plans to remarry on August 8, 1962. As the big day approached, the sources say, Marilyn was fitted for her wedding gown and was said to be very happy. Tragically, her death from a drug overdose three days before that wedding, which the Los Angeles County Coroner ruled a suicide, would become one of the biggest celebrity scandals of the 1960s. Because of her connections with the Kennedys and unresolved questions about events that night, her death also became a conspiracy scandal that endures to this day. Joe DiMaggio never remarried. For the rest of his life, he had roses placed on her grave in Westwood every week. He died March 8, 1999. We've still got a ways to go with the Rat Pack story, and here are some of the headlights. Whoops, Freudian slip. And here are some of the highlights. Frank and his ties to the mob become a liability when JFK is advised not to fly to Frank's home in Palm Springs to celebrate his victories, and that caused the breakup with Frank and Peter. Sam Giancana and Marilyn were getting too close. Frank's son gets kidnapped. Dean's son dies when his Air Force jet crashes into a mountain. Dean gets his own TV show. Frank nearly drowns in Hawaii. Joey gets his own TV sitcom. Frank records a song sent to him by Paul Anka and does it his way. And in 1970, Dean removed the bar from the set of the Dean Martin show, admitting that the Rat Pack days were officially over. Part 3 of the Rat Pack, coming soon. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is International Subscribe to the 1001 Podcast Month, and we're asking each and every one of you to please step forward and show your appreciation for our stories by subscribing for only $2.99 a month. The link is in the show notes, and it's safe. Come on, guys, $2.99 a month, less than a cup of blended coffee that you're buying probably every day. And all this entertainment, great stories, masterful mysteries, illuminating legends, and classy short stories from great writers like Ambrose Bierce and Mark Twain. We are theater for the mind. We now have an app called 1001 Stories Network that carries all three of our shows. 1001 Heroes, 1001 Classic Short Stories, and 1001 Stories for the Road. We encourage you to listen to all three, and that app makes it easy. It's free, and we've posted a link in the show notes for you. Thanks to each and every one of you who has joined in the past few weeks. I'm enjoying your emails as well. Thank you. I really appreciate your coming aboard and hope you're enjoying unlimited access to all our episodes with your premium membership. Our subscribers become premium members and have access to literally hundreds of timeless episodes which are currently only available to subscribers. Plus, they receive early bird releases and bonus episodes as extras and they're the first to get updates about what we're doing and where we're headed. We'll keep doing our best to provide clean entertainment and a wide variety of great storytelling and history. Thanks. We'll see you next week with Part 3, the conclusion of the Rat Pack. Hi, everybody. Two updates for you. 
Number one, I got this Rat Pack 2 episode in at the top of the week, just before I got really sick. So my recording voice is shot. I'm not going to be able to do a 1001 Classic Short Stories or 1001 Stories for the Road this week. And I wanted to alert you to a new podcast called Drunk Mysteries. It's a podcast done by Ben Pileski and John Nefsinger. Basically, they get totally hammered and cover a mystery every week. They contacted us a few weeks ago and asked if we'd be up for doing a skit together, and I agreed. They are totally different from us, but I figured, heck, I'd try to help out the new guys. Their regular shows are explicit and often interrupted by what sounds like glass breaking, and they're way out there. For instance, in this week's episode of Drunk Mysteries, they both take a road trip to Colorado to heighten their perception while recording. So you get what I mean. At any rate, I suggested they try a War of the World series, and they cast me as a radio station of a small town in Virginia that they had come to to apply for work as reporters. Basically, they got the boot, but soon after, a a UFO lands near the town, and the station manager calls them back and asks them to go out there and report on it. So if you find Drunk Mysteries at iTunes or Stitcher this week, they added this skit at 36.50 into the show. If you like wild and crazy podcasting, this show might be just the solution for you. into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.